need somebody Help. Not just anybody Help. You know I need someone Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 283 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. Our topic today is protecting the genetic data of families with histories of serious illnesses. In our episode of October 22, 2013, titled Huntington's Disease Society of America and Huntington's Society of Canada Speak About Genetic Testing, my two guests, Louise Vetter and Bev Heim-Myers, urged families to be careful with their family genetic heritage information. What family genetic heritage information involves is explained in two words, genome. This is the family genetic heritage information embedded in all of our body's processes that transfer our characteristics to our offspring. Biobanks, these are computer libraries of family genetic heritage information. They're libraries which instead of books keep samples of blood, saliva, plasma, and DNA. The libraries which, instead of catalogues, use family genetic heritage information. We learn the power, the power of family genetic heritage information from England's King Richard III, who died 500 years ago. In 2012, they found his body under a car park and then analyzed and used his family genetic heritage in his DNA to link him to a Canadian citizen. This history warns us that our family genetic heritage information outlives us, outlives our children, and outlives their children's children, and so on and on. Using, for using family genetic heritage information, the Declaration of Helsinki states that all biobanks must require informed consent. But what right, what right have we to give informed consent on behalf of generations of our families not yet born? Which is one of the reasons why our topic today, protecting the genetic data of families with histories of serious illnesses is so important. So welcome back to our guests, Louise Vetter and Bev Heim-Myers. Louise is the Chief Executive Officer of the Huntington's Disease Society of America, um, the largest public not-for-profit organization devoted to fighting Huntington's disease. She led the expansion of the society's reach with new programs to strengthen support for the community affected by Huntington's disease, to advocate for better access to care for persons living with it, to improve physician understanding of it, and to support research to bring new treatments to Huntington's disease families. She's secretary of the International Huntington's Association, a member of the board of directors of the American Brain Coalition. Bev is the chief executive officer and executive director of the Huntington Society of Canada. She chairs the Canadian Coalition for Genetic Fairness, sits on the governing council of the Health Charities Coalition Canada, 
and is an active member of the Neurological Health Charities of Canada and the National Population Health Study of Neurological Conditions. She's on the board of the International Huntington Association and she serves as a volunteer board member of the Links to Care Board of Directors. So welcome to the show, Louise and Bev. Thank you, Gordon. Now, first question for Louise, please. Please tell us some more about the work of the Huntington's Disease Society of America. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, Huntington's disease is a rare genetic condition. It is a neurological condition that uh, is caused directly by a mutation on your gene. And if one of your parents has Huntington's disease, you have a 50-50 chance of inheriting it and ultimately becoming ill. Right now, there are no treatments or cures for Huntington's disease. And so the work at HDSA is to support the families across this vast country to help them have a community of support to understand the disease, to find clinicians who are truly experts in care for HD families, and to advocate for families so that they can raise their voice to address critical issues, including the protection of their genetic information. Uh, These are really vital issues, especially at a time when there is so much attention Uh, towards developing cures and looking at trends across disease populations. So there's a lot to be done uh, to move HD science forward and to help protect families, and that's what HDSA is all about. Thank you. Bev, please tell us more about the work of Huntington Society of Canada. Bev? Yes, Yes. thank you, Gordon. And, And it's very similar to what Louise does in the States with HDSA. We, um, we are the only national organization that supports families by providing help and hope to those families. We maximize or we strive to maximize the quality of life uh, of people and their families living with HD by delivering services. It is a devastating disease, as Louise has already pointed out. We further research to slow and prevent HD. In fact, we have two research competitions. One is Canadian-centric, one is globally, and we have managed over the last few years to build a critical mass of award-winning researchers in Canada that share their information globally to move the, the quest for finding a treatment for HD closer to the HD population. We also enable others to understand the disease. It, it, the occurrence or the, the prevalence of HD is about 1 in 7,000, and a lot of people don't understand it. So through our uh, advocacy and increasing awareness, our uh, media attention and our publications and our website, we try to increase awareness to everybody about Huntington disease, which in the end makes life easier for our families. Right. Now, Louise, talking about work, now being more specific, please tell us about the work of the Huntington's Disease Society of America in protecting the genetic data of families with histories of Huntington's disease. Louise? Well, it's really especially important for HD families to understand the nature of the illness as something that is directly inherited. And so I I believe that families with Huntington's disease actually have a much more clearer understanding of the genome than so much of the general population. They, They know what it's like to have something in their DNA that is passed down directly that can cause illness and death. And so they are acutely aware of of the burden of the genetic inheritance that we all bear. 
for HDSA, we help families through that understanding and then point them towards the myriad of experts, genetic counselors, social workers, clinicians, geneticists, who can help them understand their risk for Huntington's disease and then what it means to have that information. And our website, hdsa.org, and the many programs that we offer through our 54 chapters and affiliates, our social workers and support groups, help support this knowledge of living at risk with a disease and the decision-making that comes through that. How do you tackle family planning, financial planning? Do you share that information with your employer, with your extended community of family and friends? What does it mean to share the, the status of being at risk for Huntington's disease in terms of long-term financial planning? So we have many resources on our website, through our community, to help people understand that and, and navigate it. Because there are risks when something like your genetic future are out there for general knowledge. Um, you really can be discriminated against, and it's quite a significant issue. Thanks, Louise. Now, Bev, it's the same question for you, but regarding Huntington Society of Canada. What, please tell us about your work in protect, protecting the genetic data of families with histories of Huntington's disease. Bev? So, so at this point in time, um, Canada is the only G8 country that does not protect genetic information. Uh, in 2008, this was identified by one of our board members as a serious issue when it comes to research moving forward, when it comes to clinical studies, that if people are in fear of sharing their genetic information, uh, knowing that it can be used by insurance companies and employers to discriminate against them, then they won't step forward for clinical trials. That was a huge issue. Huntington Society of Canada took the lead. We developed the Canadian Coalition for Genetic Fairness. It's now a 17-member coalition of other genetic, of other genetic diseases. And we lead the charge in advocating to end genetic discrimination in Canada. So uh, I, I work with federal decision makers, um, the Prime Minister's office. I work with the, the provincial, at the provincial level as well to try and increase awareness and to try and influence um, legislation to end genetic discrimination in Canada. We also uh, have social workers, 25 social workers across Canada that deal directly with the families. Those social workers are often with uh, members that have decided to go forward for genetic testing or in the process of deciding. They, they stand beside them and help them. We advocate for multidisciplinary clinics, and we provide the social worker for those clinics so that individuals have a safe place to go when they're exploring whether or not they want their genetic information explored, and they have all the answers, and they know the risks, and they have somebody to talk to about that. But the most we've done is to take this to our decision makers and our legislators through the uh, Canadian Coalition for Genetic Fairness, and we've made great strides this year. Now, can I go back very quickly to Louise? Is that a parallel situation that you're hearing about in Canada? Does it parallel with the situation in the U.S.? Louise? Well, unlike the Huntington's, uh, unlike Canada, um, in the United States, we have the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, better known as GINA. This was passed in 2008, and it does afford 
some protection to families in the United States with Huntington's disease and other genetic conditions. Um, it does prevent discrimination in the workforce based on knowledge of a genetic condition, um, and it does offer, uh, at least on paper, protection against loss of um, health care insurance and other essential benefits. However, GINA has not been tested in the courts. And so at HDSA, we counsel our families to understand the limitations of GINA, and at this point, there still is reason to pause and be careful about how much your genetic status is known to the, to the broad community. Bev, just another very quick one. Is GINA a kind of model that you're pushing for in Canada, or is it something different? Bev? Well, right now, we have, um, we have a Senate bill on the table, Bill S-201. That's a very comprehensive bill. That, um, where, where GINA does not include life insurance, um, the, we have a comprehensive bill on the table that includes all insurance. And it is a, a bill that has separate legislation to pre- protect genetic information. It also adds genetic characteristics to our Human Rights Act and to our Labor Code. So, uh, we are, we support this bill and it, and it's incredibly comprehensive. But the, the insurance industry stood beside GINA. GINA was a great step in, in the U.S., a great proactive step. So at least people take pause before they discriminate against genetic information. And it, it, was, it is protecting individuals. And the states have followed. Uh, individual states have followed with stronger legislation. Louise would certainly know more detail than I know on that. But Bev, it, well, I'm going to stop you there the because un- unfortunately we have to run out. We're running out of time, but we're going to come back to these issues. But that's a very helpful summary, both of you. Thanks very much. So we're now going to take the break. This is Dr. Gordon Natalie, and my guests are Louise Vetter and Bev Heim Myers. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Radio, uh, Community Radio. Please stay with us. We're coming back. This is the home of the top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success drivers. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. Are you taking full advantage of all the lessons that your life is trying to teach you? These lessons are the building blocks of who you are and who you will ultimately become. On Waking Up, Learning What Your Life Is Trying to Teach You, host John Earle will show you how to discover your life's lessons and how to use these lessons to transform your life into a deeper and more profound experience. Discover the meaning of your existence. Tune in to Waking Up, Learning What Your Life Is Trying to Teach You, Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change 
they want to see in the world. Tune in to the Voice America Empowerment Channel every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile. Radio to thrive by. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. Listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D O C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week. Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to Family Caregivers Unite and Louise Vetter and Bev Heim-Myers. Our topic is protecting the genetic data of families with histories of serious illnesses. Now, let's talk about what are generally called genome projects and the benefits and challenges that these create in protecting the privacy of the genetic heritage of families with histories of serious illnesses. Starting with you, Louise, please. In what ways is the Huntington's Disease Society of America involved in genome projects? What are the benefits you see coming from these projects? Louise? Genome projects are hugely beneficial to the overall medical and scientific well-being of of all peoples. I, I really believe that there is so much power in genetic information, um, and as you point out, all of those opportunities and all of that good does come with some some risk and consideration, which I know we'll explore further in conversation. But we, as an organization, and I think as representatives of one unique community in the broad catalog of humanity have a lot of experience in genetic information and navigating it. And I, I do think much like a canary in a coal mine, it allows us to chart the course and pave the way a little bit. So, for example, the HD community knows what it's like to know definitively if you're going to get sick because of something in your genome. And because of that, we've had to navigate ethical issues, financial planning issues, discrimination issues. These are all things that, as Gina, as an example of, um, color how the HD community navigates uh, life. And so we offer that experience to the broad population. And there is so much learned through the Human Genome Project in the United States, through the National Brain Bank Initiative, that when you when you are able to draw a conclusive experience for one disease, it does have broad implications across others. In HD, because of its nature as a neurological condition, we see the most obvious overlap and benefit with the Alzheimer's community, with Parkinson's, with um, ALS, better known as Lou Gehrig's disease, um, epilepsy, muscular uh, dystrophy, or uh, these are there's so much overlap uh, as you unlock some of these mysteries, and and really that's why getting involved in clinical research, observational science, especially as it relates to the genome, is a very powerful opportunity for us to understand and hopefully ultimately treat some of these illnesses. Right. 
Bev, same question. In what ways is the Huntington Society of Canada involved in genome projects, and what are the benefits you see coming from these projects? Bev? So, direct involvement in the Genome Project. We, we are involved as um, advisors to the Genome Project, and mostly at the level of genetic discrimination and how can researchers best protect genetic information. So, that is the direct involvement. Um, the benefit, oh my gosh, we're just scratching the surface, the benefit of genome information in the Genome Project. Uh, it, it can help with early detection of diseases, leading to evidence-based, life-changing, and uh, life-changing behaviors that will um, extend the onset of diseases. Informed decision making. There is so much that um, the Genome Project can help with. It can help somebody live a longer life. It can help somebody live a healthier life if they have access to this information. It's for the greater good of all to better understand the genome. The the challenges are, at this point in time, with the exception of a few diseases, Huntington being one of them, there are very few monogenetic diseases, very few diseases where you can definitively say that this mutation is found in this genome will lead to this disease. Other diseases, like Parkinson's, They don't even know where it falls in the genome. Alzheimer's, they don't know where it falls in the genome. They know the probability of of some of the sequencing and and your probability for getting a disease. But right now, it actually creates more questions than answers. And, And that's why researchers are looking to the Huntington community to find answers to, as Louise stated, ALS, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's because we have very similar symptoms and research has shown that there is an overlap in the way the proteins behave or some other biological connection between those diseases. So it's, it's incredibly important um, to know and to be part of the Genome Project in order to find answers to not only Huntington but other diseases. And, and people should feel free to do that without fear. Right. Now, Louise, switching now to the question of privacy, and I want to ask you this. In protecting the privacy of genetic, the genetic heritage of families with histories of serious illnesses, what are the greatest challenges that you see arising with the genome projects and the, their biobanks? Louise? Well, this issue of privacy is, is a very important one, and there are meaningful steps that are being taken, especially in the context of large observational studies and biobanking efforts that can offer quite a bit of protection to the individuals. And this is um, really the practice of de-identifying data, which essentially means stripping all personal identifiers from a sample uh, so that If someone were to take my blood, they would know that I'm a woman, they would know my ethnicity, uh, they may know my age and some other cursory information, but they won't know who I am and that after taking my sample, they'd really have no way to be able to trace it back to me. So on that level, it is a gift that if the data is handled correctly, um, can inform science without putting me or my 
family today or future generations at risk of discrimination and other loopholes in science and legality uh, that that may not have been foreseen right now. So the the issue of anonym of data being essentially anonymous, de-identified, and then also this process of conf- of informed consent. Um, good studies will have a very lengthy consent process that involves you to really understand what you are giving um, to the research uh, and what your what the risks for that might be. And it should never be um, somebody just handing you a form and saying, "Oh, sign it in five minutes." Um, really good, meaningful science involves you sitting with a counselor, really understanding everything in a document, and then still being able to make the decision without pressure of whether or not you want to participate. And that's something that we strongly advocate for as a science-based organization, this issue of informed consent, really having a meaningful education process about any research you might be a part of, and then specifically looking at ways to protect future generations through a process of well-managed, de-identified data. Right. Now, Bev, in protecting the privacy of genetic heritage of families with histories of serious illnesses, what are the greatest challenges that you see arising with genome projects and their biobanks? Bev? I I agree with everything Louise said. Um, I think that probably one of the greatest challenges is at this point in time, people can still be traced back in, in the genome sequencing project. So the full genome sequencing has really only started more recently in Canada. So the numbers aren't high enough for people not to be identified in that. So that's a risk early on in the game. In time, it won't be a risk, but right now it is, it is still a risk. And um, individuals, part of the genome project in Canada anyway, is to have full genome sequencing uh, put up on a website and being accessible through a website which does not protect your ancestors, which does not protect the next generation. So I think that that is, that is a challenge. It, it might seem like a really great idea now, but as we become much more informed with what our genome is telling us and as it becomes much more accurate, right now it's still probable. It's, it's not incredibly accurate. It creates more answers than more questions than answers. And, and it is challenging, complicated and personal information. But in time, it won't be so challenging. And in time, it'll be very specific. So I think people have to be very careful at this point to understand what is protected and what isn't. Because you're not just making a decision for yourself, you're making a decision for your ancestors and, and, or for your, your future generations. Let me go back to Louise on this particular point of the future. Um, what are the ethical issues involved in giving in consent um, to the disclosure of information or the sharing of genetic information for the progeny many, many generations ahead. Now, unfortunately, that's a big question, and we've only got a minute for you to respond, because I want Bev to have a quick word on that. Do you think that's a soluble problem, or do you see it continuing to trouble us? I will will try and be very brief. Uh, I think, um, ethically, it is an incredible conundrum. You can never ethically give permission to those who do not exist yet. Um, You you take away their ability to, to... to have a decision, uh, to have an action, and that, that is an incredible conundrum. Um, I do want to point out that what Bev was talking about related to um, 
was really focused on individual choice related to getting your genome sequenced or needing it sequenced for a specific issue, whereas I was thinking more broadly across biobanking for registries and for scientific information. And so certainly from a scale perspective, if you're part of a large study, you're going to have greater anonymity. But if you are doing it for personal information and uh, and participating in consumer genome sequencing, then the risks are higher. Right. Bev, just a quickie. Do you see this as a, an ethical challenge of the same magnitude that Louise sees it? This broad. Yes. 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 Now, how good are we at dealing with those kinds of... And this, again, is a long question for a few seconds, but are we strong enough in dealing with these ethical issues that arise, or do you think there's need for more study, more work, and more discussion? Bev? In Canada, for sure, there's a need for more work, more discussion, more understanding. Um, If we move to protect genetic information, that takes us a great step forward. But at this point in time, any of that information that is shared or people can decipher from what information is in front of them has impact to be used against somebody instead of being used to benefit the individuals and families. Very good. Now, at that key point, we take the short break. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley. My guests are Louise Vetter and Bev Heim-Myers. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. on Facebook, along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. When you make decisions, do you ever find yourself in doubt? Are you trying to figure out what's right with you? Are you ready to truly change your life? Listen for the Access Consciousness Radio Show with the founders of Access Consciousness, Gary Douglas and Dr. Dane Here, Consciousness is all about including everything and judging nothing. Our program will help you break free from your personal limitations and enhance positive change in all areas of your life. Tune in to Access Consciousness, Thursdays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. It's time to access your magic. Tune in each week to Living in the Magic of Possibilities with your host, Glenice Hughes. Our topics cover finances, personal health, business, relationships, mediumship, and so much more. If you want to access all that is possible in your life, listen to Glenice and her expert guests who've turned the impossible into the possible. Living in the Magic of Possibilities is heard live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. This is the home of the top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success drivers. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. 
are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Louise Vetter and Bev Heim-Myers. Our topic is protecting the genetic data of families with histories of serious illnesses. Now let's talk about overcoming the challenges that arise uh, when we rely on the consent of individuals and their families. That is the challenges to protecting the privacy of the genetic heritage of families with histories of serious illnesses. So starting with you, Louise, please. In the USA, to what extent is consent generally generally relied on for protecting the privacy of the genetic heritage of families with histories of serious illnesses? Louise? For a well-run medical or scientific study, consent is heavily depended upon to protect not only the individual and the family, but the institution and the scientific researchers. The liability uh, and just the, the legal culture in which we live in uh, has made it par for the course, and it's, it's very important and very meaningful. There are many challenges when it comes to decisions to secure your genetic information, in particular through a more consumer-oriented approach, something like 23andMe or some of the genetic uh, tests you can literally do in the privacy of your home, uh, send it in and then get a scorecard of what diseases you're at risk for. Uh, That information is is much more difficult to know how it's going to be used, how it's going to be categorized, uh, and what the intention of those who... Uh, have who are privy to the data might be, uh, and so there are risks. I I would say that as a society, we learn from our mistakes. We do get smarter. We do a better job at anticipating risks, not only for participants but for future generations. And so, some of the darker days of American history, uh, North American and global, uh, where eugenics uh, and which specifically was the act of determining those at risk for becoming a burden on society uh, would um, go through compulsory sterilization or, uh, you know, some other means that are less savory uh, would be explored. And we like to think that that was um, something of the 1700s. But in truth, as as recently as the 1900s, there were global inclinations towards this. Um, So... We've gotten smarter. We've learned from this. Uh, but this ethical conundrum of um, what do you do uh, and how do you maintain free will uh, with increased understanding of your genetic risk is a significant issue for families, scientists, and society uh, as a whole to continue to navigate. Right. Bev, in Canada, same question. To what extent is consent generally relied on for protecting the privacy of the genetic heritage of families with histories of serious illnesses. Bev? I think that um, consent in a clinical setting, my, my answer is not much different than Louise's answer. In a clinical setting, consent is, is strong. The information can be protected, 
and, uh, it, and it is not shared. Once you go beyond a clinical setting, and like a research setting or, or a um, genetic clinic setting, once you go beyond that, there, there is no guarantee that that information is going to be protected. In fact, in Canada, uh, if you've had your genome sequenced, even in a clinical setting, and you apply for insurance, the insurance companies have a right to ask for that information. So there's no protection there. That is a barrier to going forward. That is a barrier to clinical trials in Canada. That is a barrier to people knowing how to live the rest of their life and how to prepare for that. It is, um, it is certainly a step that we need to change and, and protect that information. And consent is only, a, at this point in time, only a very small portion of the protection. And, you know, it was only 25 years ago, which is hard to believe for me, that individuals from Huntington disease families, young girls, were sterilized so that they could not have children going forward. It, it's, um, it's hard to believe that that's in our short history and short memory. We have come a ways from that, but we still are not protecting genetic information, and consent is only a very small part of the picture. Right. Now, Louise... What types of information do individuals and families need so they can understand what they may be consenting to for themselves? Louise? Well, I think it's really a very simple checklist of sort of who, what, why, when, and how, um, and potentially where. Uh, But really understanding what the motivation is for any level of genetic testing, whether it's um, a woman who is considering a genetic screening for her unborn, unborn child uh, to an adult who's having a conversation with a friend and says, hey, I wonder what my risk for heart disease is and, and look something up online. Um, really, the full spectrum of considerations needs to be weighed um, to then, why am I considering a test? Who's asking me to? Am I doing this of my own accord? Um, who would be helping me through the testing, uh, and who can I turn to to get more information? Where would the test be run? Is it at Harvard University, or is it at a clinic around the corner? Um, when? What is the reasonable time frame for me to do this? Is there counseling and testing I should undertake before the blood work is done? How am I going to get the information? Is it something that someone's just sending in the mail and that... Um, could conceivably be picked up by anybody who handles anything at the post office. Um, All of those questions um, require that the individual consider the level of risk in how they're getting the information and how it could be used for or against them and how they may be using it. And so what we try and do in the Huntington's disease space is ask families to consider um, why they're considering testing, if they are, um, and then make sure that they have many conversations with different folks who can help them do a real, to use a phrase, 360 review of the motivation and impact of this information. Um, and this, this applies to uh, getting the information for personal use or for participating in a study. Um, you should still really go through that exercise of understanding it. And, and I will say that... In the U.S., even with the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, there are 
many, many people who choose to uh, consider genetic testing under an alias, um, pay for it out of pocket so their health insurance has no idea that they've done it, to use an alias. There are just no guarantees, and they, they take very seriously the need to uh, get the information and then, if they, if they need to, be able to consider long-term planning issues and other financial issues. Um, but that anonymity, that how they're getting the information and how to protect themselves is something that even in a relatively protective culture and society as the U.S. requires a lot of thought and, and hard consideration. Right. Bev, what types of information do individuals and family need so they can understand what they may be consenting to for their descendants? Bev? I think that individuals need to be comfortable in the setting that they're asking, that they're either considering a genetic test or genetic sequencing, to ask a lot of questions, ask a lot of whys. Uh, and 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 what I, I agree with the who what why when and and how understand what's happening who is this information going to be shared with if I don't necessarily want others to know this is me can can this be um, blinded can I or if I don't necessarily want to know my results if I want to participate in a clinical study yet I don't really want to know my results to this genetic test or this potential disease, can it be blinded? People should be informed of the questions that they can ask. They should also, when, it, when genetic sequencing is being done or put into a database, they should be able to opt out of some of the questions. Is there an option to answer the questions that you're comfortable answering? Uh, all of this, and, and in some studies and, and in big databases, that's, that's not an option. So I think that people have to respect and the studies have to respect that individuals have to protect themselves first and they may want to opt out of questions. It's incredibly important also for individuals to understand accuracy. The accuracy increases in a clinical setting. The 23s and me of the world, the direct-to-consumer testing that we referred to earlier, you can go to three different companies and get three different results. People have done that. Reporters have done that. So understand where the information is coming from. Uh, there's no regulation yet, although the states have made, in the U.S., they've made great strides in, in protecting people um, working with 23andMe and uh, et cetera. They haven't done that in Canada, so we have no regulation in Canada. So understand that this is more than just an effort of curiosity. And if you're really serious about it, go to the right place and get the right help and be with a geneticist. Be with the right people that can walk you through it if you choose to do it. So people also have to understand that there is nobody forcing you to do this. Readiness is incredibly important going forward when you're getting genetic testing. Are you ready to receive the information that this may give you? And are you are you ready to still live your best life once you know that information? And that is purely a personal choice. Both of you, this has been profoundly important what you've been saying because it implies that there's more uncertainty, not only about questions of how privacy is protected, but also about the data itself. The research data, you're saying, is important. It's likely to be reliable. It's likely to be accurate. But... 
going around just down the road from where I'm speaking is a shopping plaza and it has a um, store offering services for people who are overweight and that includes genetic profiling um, I would suspect that um, we would say that's likely to be more the subject of errors than the research so in other words I'm steering it to this sort of observation that what you're making clear is that public education in a general way as well as in a specific way for individuals who are, consisting, who are considering testing is actually crucially important. Now on that point it's time to take the break. This is Dr. Gordon Averley and my guests are Louise Vetter and Bev Myers. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. We're on Facebook, along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. It's time to empower our kids so they can make the best decisions now and later in life. Listen for I Am For Kids Radio with host Mark Papadis. Mark is the founder of the I Am For Kids Foundation, which is a recognized 501c3 charity committed to revolutionizing elementary education in the U.S. Our show helps kids, teachers, and parents to realize the power of identity and help each of us decide who we are and our place in the world. I Am For Kids Radio is heard live Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Ready for a unique two-show-in-one package? Check out Life's Journey with Tim Manson, the 7-Minute Motivator. On the one part, we're all about changing minds, one heart at a time. Tim will show you how to overcome struggles in your life and come out winning, as Tim is overcoming his struggle with MS. On the flip side, Tim will show you how the power and spirit of the horse and equine-assisted learning programs can inspire and empower you to take that winning edge to a new level. It really is two shows in one. Tune in every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This is the home of the top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success drivers. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Louise Vetter and Bev Heim-Myers. Our topic is protecting the genetic data of families with histories of serious illnesses. Now let's talk about the things that you both would like to see done to enhance public education about protecting genetic heritages of families with histories of serious illnesses. Starting with you, Louise, please. What more would you like to see done in the USA to enhance public education about the things we've been talking about? Louise? 
Well, thank you, Gordon. I think there's a real responsibility for medical professionals uh, across all sort of fields of, of or walks of life or fields of service, uh, as well as for the government, and I'm thinking the FDA in the case of the United States and the NIH, National Institutes of Health, to help people understand the risk-benefit uh, proposition of more access to genetic information. As I think we've outlined, there are a lot of benefits to science, um, but there are risks to the individual that, uh, if not navigated appropriately, could be really challenging. And I thought that, Gordon, your example of the clinic around the corner that offers genetic testing in a consumer venue is a really apt one. Uh, if someone were to, on a whim, uh, decide to, to get that test um, and get the results and then go to their clinician and have a conversation about the results, that can be part of an informed process to, leave, to lead a healthier life. Most of the time, those types of genetic scorecards are just risk assessments. They're not diagnoses. And risk assessments allow you to think differently about your health. And working with a medical professional can have some real gain. Uh, However, if you receive that information in a vacuum and panic and don't know how to interpret the results uh, and don't know how to protect yourself from the information that you may have given or may be may be shared as a result, um, then it's a really difficult water to navigate. And I think there is great responsibility to share more information about that. Um, I would not go to a psychic and walk away from a psychic experience and change my entire life based on what she says. Uh, And I would hope that someone who participates in a consumer test doesn't react so black and white to something that comes back, but uses that as a piece of information in a broad uh, picture of their health. And I think that's, that's really important in today's day and age when there is more and more access to genetic information, um, putting it in appropriate context, using it as a tool for dialogue, and then knowing when to share it and how not to share it is really important as we continue to come of age in the genetic time. Good. Now, Bev, over to you. What more would you like to see done in Canada to enhance public education? Bev? So, in in Canada, we would truly like to see a built-in Canada strategy that um, learns from our other global global, uh, affiliations. So, a built-in Canada strategy that proactively addresses protecting genetic information and ending genetic discrimination. We have a real opportunity to fill the gaps that have been created in other jurisdictions to better understand a win-win situation and to move forward proactively and make it happen. Whether that is legislation, uh, it's whether it is strengthening our privacy laws, whatever it is, it needs to proactively address the situation so that people are not feeling that they have to take this to the courts after the fact and after it's happened. So that is a critical step in, in this whole project. It's, it's a critical step in the genome project. It's a critical step in individualized medicine for people to move forward freely to better understand what their genome is and if there is a treatment for them that is better with their biological makeup, then they should be able to do that without fear, without fear that that information is going to be used against them. I think it's incredibly important for any healthcare provider, any 
clinic, anybody who's dealing with somebody else's private and personal genetic information to first and foremost inform that person to the risks of them providing that information, providing the biomaterial that will then uh, enable a genome sequencing. It's incredibly important for people to know the risks involved in that and that down the road, because we do not have proactive protection, it can be used against them. So it's up to, it's up to the individuals that are, are using this for their research or for business purposes to educate people. And it's right. up to the individual to truly understand how this information can be used for them, to their benefit, or against them, and how to protect themselves and their future generations. Now, I'm going to Louise with a question which I'm also going to ask Bev afterwards, just very quickly. What's your message for healthcare professionals about the importance of protecting the genetic heritage of families? Louise, your quick message. I'm reminded of the phrase, first do no harm. I think, first and foremost, um, understand the harm that is potentially um, a result of sharing of genetic information and work from that point to help a family understand it. So I I believe there's a great responsibility for medical professionals to really understand what genetic information is available, how it can be used, and also to take the time to understand how the average family might react to that information. And that's where professional counselors uh, in the land of genetics really are skilled at navigating that. But, uh, you know, first and foremost, think about how the family is going to interpret this and be a resource that um, can help them guide proactively through, through these waters. Right. Bev, your message for hospitals about the importance of protecting the genetic heritage of families with histories of serious illnesses. Bev? Understand that this is more than just about data. This is more than just about a research project. This is more than looking at uh, many genomes and pulling them together and, and understanding treatments. Where this has the genome project and genetic information has great promise for so many things, whether it be prevention, treatment, prediction, It has great promise, but the bottom line is you're working with individual families. Respect the information. Respect the privacy of those individuals. Ensure that they have the best counseling that they can possibly have because this process may take them to a very dark place, and they need the help. And you can't desensitize yourself to the fact that this isn't about individuals, that it's, it's about this big mass of information that's for the better good. Right now, we have to protect the individuals that have the courage to come forward. We have to protect them and let them know what the risks are, let them understand before they receive the information how they may feel, and we need to guide them through that and proactively protect them in that. Individuals need to know that, too. But it's a confusing world. Not all individuals understand when they get into a situation. They don't understand with uh, genome sequencing or um, a genetic genetic test for that matter. They really don't understand what they're getting into, and they don't understand that this may impact future generations. Right. They need to understand that. 
which is why education is important. Now, unfortunately, we're at the end of this very informative and powerful episode. I want to say thank you to Louise and Bev for sharing with us your insights, your experience, and your advice to family caregivers, to people going, undergoing tests, to professionals, and to institutions. So all success to you. I want to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And from our listeners, I'd like to hear about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. Our next episode will be One Kenton Alzheimer's Center of Excellence. Please join us. Same time, same spot on the Internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again twice every week. Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until the next show, we hope our programs help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. 